Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. I'm John Fugelsang. This is SiriusXM Progress. And it's a pleasure to have you with us. Uh, hello to everyone listening live, all of our evil army of the night. We would love to hear from you here on the night spot. Um, and hello to all the daywalkers, everyone who listens to us on tape, as if tape was still a thing. Everyone who listens to us uh, on the John Fugelsang podcast or SiriusXM's app or SiriusXM On Demand, we hope you guys are great. We love getting your letters and notes at the Facebook page and the website and all the other fun things. Uh, great, great show tonight. Let me just give you the quick little rundown here. Um, one of my favorite character actors, Sebastian Roche, who I've wanted to get on the show for a while, is joining us. He um, might not be an immediately recognizable name. He's got a resume that's just massive. From his first film role, opposite Daniel Day-Lewis in Last of the Mohicans, he was on Broadway with Al Pacino and Salome, uh, with Robert De Niro in 15 Minutes, with Anthony Hopkins and Beowulf. He was also in Steven Spielberg's The Adventures of Tintin and so many TV shows, a regular on The Vampire Diaries, on The Originals, which is the sequel to The Vampire Diaries, on The Supernatural, um, The Supernatural, he's like my father. He was a terrorist on General Hospital. He was a regular on Supernatural. So so now he's starring on this new Paramount Plus TV series, 1923. That's the one with Helen Mirren and Harrison Ford. And it's really good. It's a really good show, but I'll tell you, the unexpectedly amazing part of this show, and the actors are terrific, Harrison Ford and Helen Mirren do wonderful work, but there's a subplot about residential schools in the United States. You know, the, the schools and dormitories where they took kidnapped indigenous children, stole them from their families, and essentially tried to train them to be white. We've heard a lot in the last two years about a reckoning Canada's having over their long, ugly history of residential schools. That reckoning has not yet begun in America, but maybe it will with this show because Sebastian Roche plays a monstrous French priest who abuses both the girls in his care and the nuns who abuse the girls in his care. It is a chilling performance. It is the last great, scary villain performance of 2023. And I'm so delighted to have him here and talk about all of his TV shows, from The Young Pope to The Man in the High Castle to what it's like to work with Harrison Ford. Also, the great Max Burns will be with us to talk all about, well, you know, what else? Elon and the Republicans ruining a good thing. Chris Houseltz, our executive producer, running this thing from the South Carolina. 
Bureau. And Thea Harper runs it from Brooklyn. I'm here in Manhattan. Uh, we also have a pay-per-view special of the show we just did in L.A. for election 2022. You can still get it at meathook.live or go to Sexy Liberal. It's Stephanie Miller and Hal Sparks and Frangela and me with our special guests Rob Reiner and Glenn Kirshner. It's a great, great show. And... Our year-end special, where I sit down and run through some of the major stories and themes of 2022 with Dr. Jason Nichols and Dr. Tracy Pearson. I'd like to be the dumbest person in any gathering and be the only person without a doctorate. That's going to premiere this Friday. We'll be airing that uh, throughout the entire break. There's a lot to get to. We're going to talk about Zelensky. We're going to play a lot of clips of this incredible historic day. And yes, we're going to talk about this weather. Because, folks, please, if you're traveling by plane, do yourself a favor and just download the app for your airline first. You might have to change it, and I don't want it to be too rocky for you at the holidays. Let's get to it. We're going to cover it all tonight, and I want to hear from you. One more time, our number is 866-997-4748. Let's do a show. And I want to begin tonight by talking about, you know, the masters of malfeasance, the dealers of double talk and jive, the practitioners of rank fuckery. It's time for a little game we call the dick list. Um, this is a game where we talk about who's a dick right now. It's possible to get off the dick list. We have that caveat. You can redeem yourself anytime and be removed from the list. And of course, the other caveat is at different times in our lives, we're all dicks. Uh, it's all curable and in many cases preventable. But look, we got a lot of proudly horrible people serving in our government right now. You got the QAnon conspiracy junkies like Marjorie Taylor Greene, Herschel Walker, who isn't in the government, but lied about every credential possible. You got Lauren Boebert, who's now going to war with Marjorie Taylor Greene when she's not toting guns and lying and having her husband expose himself in bowling alleys. Tom Cotton lied about serving as an army ranger in Iraq and Afghanistan. Matt Gates, professional troll living under a bridge. Oh, I'm sorry. No, no. He's a professional troll living under federal investigation for sex trafficking. And he proudly didn't clap for Zelensky tonight. But let me tell you, frauds, let me tell all you, all you double talking jivers, better watch out. I'm telling you why. Santos fraud is coming to town. Folks, we might have to crown a king. We might have to crown a bigger liar and bullshitter than, than Donald Trump. You you know the story by now. You've heard all about the new congressman from Long Island, 34 years old, uh, alleges to be gay. Let's, let's go with that. Uh, a gay Latino Republican, child of immigrants, a rare combination of identities for this particular party. In November, he ran again for a House seat that he ran for and lost in 2020. Okay. And, and, you know, good for you. Uh, it's good to know the Democratic Party in New York State is this derelict in their job. He had lost this race in 2020, but this time he lent his campaign some money, money he had, $700,000. He loaned himself for his own midterm election, and he donated a lot to other candidates. Now, he reported a $750,000 salary. Uh, gave himself $700,000 and reported dividends of over $1 million from his company, Devolder Organization, which he described as a family firm that does capital introduction consulting with over $80 million in 13 different real estate assets. And once he began loaning himself money, second time's the charm, he won as part of this Republican mini-wave. At least it was a mini-wave in suburban districts in the state of New York. And he, of course, helped Kevin McCarthy get a narrow, tiny victory in the House. And then the news began to trickle in this week about Mr. Santos. He doesn't really have a degree from Baruch. He never went to NYU. He lied when he said he lost 
multiple employees at the Pulse nightclub shooting. Think about that. Think about lying about employing victims of a gun massacre. Think about using their tragedy as a, as a shield, as camouflage, to feign virtue. He said he worked for Goldman Sachs and Citigroup and was a seasoned Wall Street financier and investor. Both Goldman Sachs and Citigroup told the New York Times they had no record of him ever working at those firms. He, he ran a nonprofit called Friends of Pets United that he claimed had saved over 2,000 dogs. New York Times could find no record of that organization ever existing as a tax-exempt charity. They, they found an old Facebook page. And the Times also reported that uh, Congressman-elect Santos faced criminal charges for stealing checks when he was 19 years old from an older man that his uh, mother, who was a nurse, was caring for, and he made fraudulent purchases with these checks he stole. And when he was 21, he confessed to the crimes, and they charged him, but he never responded to the official summons, and they couldn't find him anywhere in Brazil at his given address. And this is when he claims falsely. He was attending Baruch College. You you guys know all about this. This guy made $55,000 a year in 2020. By 2021, he was making between 3 and $11 million through a company he created that lasted less than one year. And he can't stop lying about all of it. How did his assets grow from 55000 a year to $11 million? Where did the $700,000 come from to loan to his own campaign? I mean, it's pretty rough. Who bought this guy? This wasn't his money. So who bought him? Who bought a congressional seat? I mean, this would be damning. But what if it got so damning today that hell wouldn't take him? (laughs) See, Mr. Santos, a Republican from Long Island, he has said uh, that his father was Catholic, but his mother was Jewish. And so both faiths are mine. Now, I grew up on Long Island. He's right about this. Uh, Everyone's Catholic or Jewish. I didn't know what a Protestant was until I got to college. But if you go to his campaign website on the About George page, it actually says George's grandparents fled Jewish persecution in Ukraine, settled in Belgium, and again fled persecution in World War II. What if I told you he was lying about his grandparents fleeing the Nazis? What if I told you? He was lying about even being Jewish. Turns out his narrative of having Jewish grandparents who fled Europe in World War II is another lie. The website MyHeritage.com lists his maternal grandparents as having both been born in Brazil before the Nazis rose to power in 1918 and 1927. And then it turns out he's been lying about being Jewish on his mother's side. Turns out his mother's first name is Fatima. Extremely Catholic. Not very Jewish. And his mother's no longer with us. Rest in peace. But her obituary made no reference whatsoever to being Jewish. But he campaigned in Jewish neighborhoods on Long Island. Said he was part of their communities. He did events for Jewish Republicans. They, they tried to track down his mother's Facebook page. And they found out that um, she was all into Catholic groups. And she kept sharing posts about Jesus. He lied about Jewish heritage. He lied about being a descendant of Holocaust survivors. He has insulted Jews so much, he is perfectly qualified to be part of this Republican Party. He put out a statement today or yesterday blasting the Times for, you know, being out to get him, but he did not refute any of their allegations, provided no information to back up any of his claims. And Kevin McCarthy's not going to do anything about it because. Young Mr. Santos has already pledged his support for Kevin McCarthy to be speaker. That's the racket. That's the rot. 
incoming House Democratic leader, uh, Representative Hakeem Jeffries, also from New York, who got elected to Congress from New York without lying about his resume. Well, uh, he has thoughts. Here he is on the still developing dishonesty of incoming Republican Congressman George Santos. At this moment, we need answers from George Santos. He appears to be a complete and utter fraud. His whole life story made up. And he's going to have to answer that question. Did you perpetrate a fraud on the voters of the 3rd Congressional District in New York? Right now, George Santos appears to be in the witness protection program. No one can find him. He's hiding from legitimate questions that his constituents are asking about his education, about his so-called charity, about his work experience, about his criminal entanglement in Brazil, Mm -hmm. about every aspect, it appears, of his life. It's also apparent to me that George Santos has perpetrated a fraud in terms of his views on delivering for the people of Nassau County. He pretended to be a moderate on the campaign trail. We know that is not true. He's consistently played footsie with white supremacists, election deniers, and those who seek to overturn our democracy. And so we'll see what happens on January 3rd. It's an open question to me as to whether this is the type of individual that the incoming majority should welcome to Congress. That's a question for Kevin McCarthy at this point in time. And what will Kevin McCarthy do? Uh, The House Republican leader still has not commented on the situation. But here's my prediction. Kevin McCarthy will let George Santos serve in the House if Santos agrees to support McCarthy for speaker, which proves something very important. It proves Kevin McCarthy is so dim, he'd believe George Santos. All right, next, on the dick list. Can we talk about Trump for one minute? Because uh, last night we had the big debate. Will this release of his tax information have any effect? Is there any legislative purpose? Does it just look like Democrats were harassing him over this for years? Well, uh, the news is still trickling in, but there is news. His federal income tax payments dropped as his last year in president, to absolutely zero. He stopped paying taxes while he was living off yours and while he was profiting at his private properties from your tax dollars. In 2018 and 2019, he paid about $1.1 million in federal income tax. In 2020, he paid zero. Tell this to every conservative sucker you know Every Republican in your family that you'll be seeing at Thanksgiving, Donald Trump paid zero in taxes in 2020. Now, of course, he also finagled his way out of his tax bracket by claiming massive annual losses on properties. Like uh, in 2015, he lost 32 million. In 2016, he also lost 32 million. This is the same kind of fuckery he was up to with the Trump organization. They'll tell the government how much they're losing to pay less in taxes. And they'll tell business associates how they're rolling in dough to rake in more sucker bucks. 
Trump repeatedly paid little or nothing in federal income taxes. We know before he became president in 2016, he paid seven hundred fifty dollars in 2017. He again paid seven hundred fifty dollars. And in 2020, he paid nothing. And the IRS is supposed to audit every single president. Uh, turns out they didn't even begin vetting Trump's tax filings until they began asking about them in 2019. But there's something right on the surface that still isn't being discussed. Donald Trump lied to the American people that he would release his tax returns. He promised it in 2011, 2014, 2015 and 2016. And then he sued the New York attorney general so America could not find out who and where he gets his money from. Well, People have remembered that. And now congressmen, members of the House Ways and Means Committee, they are slamming this guy for lying about the fake IRS audit through his presidency. Now, if you all listen to the Progress Channel, you probably already knew he was lying for many years. And if you listen to the Breitbart Channel or the Patriot Channel and you're just over here accidentally, you probably knew he was lying and you didn't fucking care. But in 2016, he kept saying he couldn't share his details and his financials because it was an ongoing audit, ongoing audit. All through the presidency, so many audits, turns out they weren't auditing him and they didn't audit him when they were supposed to. The IRS failed to follow the law. They did not audit Donald Trump for two years and he was lying when he said he was under audit. So think about this. Think about why Alan Weisselberg is going to jail, right? Trump's businesses consistently operated at a loss, reducing his tax obligations. We know that now. But also, you know, this is Trump again doing his thing. Like like there are standards for any politician and he will say, OK, I'll do it. Then he'll reject it. And then he'll say he's being persecuted for having to do the thing he promised to do in the first place. But there's one more name for the dick list, and it's not as big as Santos or Trump. And I, I want you to just, just th- take a moment and think about this name, Judge Jared Smith, because this guy's very special. He's not as egregious as Trump or Santos, but I added him on the list because he's, he's not getting enough attention. He's an evangelical Christian Florida judge. He just lost his judicial seat in November in the election, 52 to 48, which is hard to do for an incumbent judge. It's very rare that a sitting judge gets voted out like this. He's the judge. Well, he's got quite a history. Um, He's the judge who denied a teenager an abortion because of her grades in school. And, And he's also the same guy who, when he was running on the campaign trail this year, against a Jewish woman named Nancy Jacobs had his wife say at a campaign event that Nancy Jacobs needs Jesus. So pretty awful, right? I mean, this is why the people in Florida voted him out. Turns out, even though he was rejected, he's not going to have to hang up his judicial robe at all. He has now received a promotion thanks to the biggest dick on the list. See, Really quick, Judge Jared Smith was the guy who, uh, uh, back back uh, earlier in the year, there was a 17-year-old girl who was trying to get a judicial waiver so she could get an abortion without her parents' consent. This is the same judge who decided the girl did not demonstrate the maturity, intelligence, and other qualities necessary to make that decision. So in a two-to-one ruling, a three-judge panel found uh, that he had abused his judicial discretion when he declined her request for a waiver. He literally said the girl isn't mature and intelligent enough to make the decision for an abortion, but she's mature enough to have a baby and raise it. That fucking guy. Well, guess what? Now he's a judge again. Thanks to Ron DeSantis, the worst 
of all of them. Worse than Trump? Yeah, he, Ron DeSantis is worse than Trump. Why is that, Johnny? Because Ron DeSantis is a greater threat to everything you care about than Donald Trump will ever be again. Donald Trump's not going to get to fuck with your judiciary. Donald Trump's not going to get to put more hacks on the Supreme Court. Donald Trump's not going to be able to be a leader who lies to you about COVID. Donald Trump's not going to get to make life harder for trans Americans or immigrants or people who are sick. Donald Trump's not going to get to try to take your health care away. Ron DeSantis could. And he just gave this judge, whose wife makes the anti-Semitic comments on the campaign trail, he just appointed him to fill one of the vacancies on the brand new 6th District Court of Appeals. What do you do with these people? You pick them up by their ankles and you beat the party with them. Think about the Democrats. Think about the Democrats when they have members who misbehave. Think about Katie Hill or Al Franken, John Edwards, Brock Adams, Anthony Weiner, Elliot Spitzer, Kwame Kilpatrick. Think about Jim McGreevy or Bob Wise or Bob Filner. These are the same people on the Republican side who claim all the women who accuse Trump and Kavanaugh and Gates are all liars. Democrats eject them. Republicans elect them. It's a lot of heroes you got there, GOP. Keep them right where they are. Please let these men raise tons of money for their Democratic opponents for the next two years. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Welcome back to SiriusXM. I'm John Fugelsang. Quick reminder, if you've been a fan of our recent special interviews, like our, our special with uh, Ken Burns on his incredible film about the Holocaust, or our recent sit-down with Guillermo del Toro about his wonderful Pinocchio film that you should really see, you can hear all of those anytime at SiriusXM On Demand, or the SiriusXM app, or the John Fugelsang podcast. We are at 866-997-4748. Okay, I'm going to gush a little bit. It's going to be a little bit embarrassing, but I want to talk about the last Last great TV show of 2023, the Harrison Ford Helen Mirren series 1923, which is, of course, a prequel to Yellowstone. You've heard Chris and me talking about it. The first episode is just spectacular. And I want to talk about an actor who I've admired for a long time as a, a terrific leading man and character actor, but who now is turning in. I mean, a performance of a villain that is so familiar and yet unlike anything we have seen. Sebastian Rocher is a French-Scottish actor with an incredible origin story and a fascinating background. You've seen him over the years on everything from the deeply unappreciated Showtime series Odyssey 5. And over the years, I mean, General Hospital, Charmed, Alias, of course, his biggest fans are for Supernatural and the Vampire Diaries. Uh, 
He was also in uh, the new the Young Pope with Jude Law and played a Nazi in The Man in the High Castle. This man's resume is so delightful. He has played an angel. He's played a Nazi. He's played a cardinal. He's played a vampire. He played Jesus. He's played the angel Gabriel. He's played John the Baptist opposite Al Pacino in a great play I saw. But nothing will prepare you for his performance as Father Renault in 1923. It's a great pleasure to welcome Sebastian Rocher. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm blushing, blushing. Uh, it, it really is a pleasure to be here. I mean, I've admired you as well uh, for many years, so this is a pure delight to be here. Oh, well, thank you. I, I, I'm deeply honored by your kind words. I mean, <laughs> your your characters have obviously floated between the evil and the sublime uh, and everything in between for such a long time. But as someone who was raised by two ex-clergy, as someone who has heard firsthand stories of abuse from nuns and story of abuse to nuns. And uh, as someone who hosts a show where we talk a lot about the horrors of residential schools, the ethnic cleansing of indigenous people and what was done to First Nations children, um, I wasn't ready for this to be the most political TV show of the year. Your character is a a French priest um, who abuses both the children in his care and the nuns who often abuse the children in his care with equal ferocity. And I have many questions about the character and about how you approach this performance. Yeah. I, I'd like to start off by just asking, how did this role come about and what was your initial take on the character? Yes, the, the role came about. I was actually auditioned for another character on the series. They liked me, but you know I wasn't right for the part. And then uh, they approached me about Father Renault and I read the part and was... You know, I was mesmerized by how uh, uh, Taylor Sheridan writes, and I have been for many years. And when I saw that character, it seemed like a very challenging character to to approach. But I thought that the story was incredibly necessary to be told. And the character, how evil, however evil he was, was, you know, important to incarnate, to tell the story of that period, the, the the painful story of residential schools and the, the ethnic cleansing that took place. So I I read a few episodes because it does get worse. I mean, episode yes. one is an introduction to the character and it does get worse as we go along. But um, I thought that it was my responsibility as an actor to 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 basically incarnate this Father Renault as best as I could. And I felt very strongly that this was going to be a, uh, not only interesting but a polarizing uh, a subject within within the, the Yellowstone universe 1923 being being the prequel and I'm really I find it extremely courageous to actually uh, um, to actually talk about this very very difficult subject and uh, working with Jennifer Ely who plays Sister Mary and and that young actress Amina Nieves was extraordinary as Tiona Rainwater. Beautiful, uh, was beautiful. Was was a really we, we worked you know all we were very careful about uh, doing these scenes and you know in in communicating with each other. I'm I'm talking a lot about how we we went about the process, but uh, yeah, I was at first I was. You know, I was thrilled to be part of the universe, you know, to, to answer your question, because I had admired Taylor Sheridan since Sicario. And 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 I thought to myself, this is I kind of willed 
myself onto the, the Taylor Sheridan universe because I truly wanted to work with this incredible wordsmith. You know, for mm -hmm. for an actor, his his writing is is heaven. You know, and uh, yes. I'm sort of you know going in every direction, but. I, yeah, this role came about me, and I think uh, it came for a reason. And I'm extremely proud of the work that I did. I worked extremely hard to to make it as um, as truthful as possible. And uh, yeah, I, I'd I, love... I'm, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, yeah, sorry. No, well, I'd love to ask you <laughs> about the work. No, not at all. I'd love to ask you about the work itself, if I could, sir. Because in the hands of a, a lesser actor, this would have been a one dimensional villain. But like so many clergy. Like so many fundamentalists of so many faiths, your character is possessed of the gentle, calming certainty that he is doing yes. the work of a righteous God and that all of his abuse is for a greater good. That's what I found so fascinating about the character. You never play him evil for a nanosecond. And I'm curious what your evolution was in understanding the character. I'm so glad that you that you're saying that because I, I I did not want to play a sort of uh, torturous uh, psychopath, you know. Even though inside, I think the man is a sociopath, a psychopath. But what was interesting to me is you can see that this man believes in what he's doing, and these are the people who are the the most terrifying. When you are within the confines of a certain way of thought, and you never go beyond that way of thought, yes. you know religious extremism being one of them you know this man is a strict disciplinarian in in the path towards god you know and he truly believes that what he do, he's doing is righteous and he does have you know uh, what i found absolutely mesmerizing in the scenes is there's a moment where he basically empathizes with the person that he is gonna torture he's gonna yes. batter and I found that moment extremely interesting. And I, I remember working on it. And, you know, as my old acting teacher <laughs> used to say, read the text. The more you're going to read the text, the more the author is going to whisper his secrets in your ears. And I really believe that the more I was reading the lines, the more I was working on the lines, uh, the more the secrets were revealed to me. And I, I yes. suddenly thought to myself, oh, yes, he does empathize with her. But he's trying to teach her a lesson and he truly believes that the lesson that he's teaching is for her own good, even though it's a monstrous act from a man, a supposed man of faith. And I've always been interested in religion, uh, you know, and, and I really love uh, how learned you are about religion. You know, as a child, I, 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 of course, read the Old Testament, the New Testament. I go back to it, even though I'm someone who would be considered I wouldn't say atheist, but, you know, not religious. Yeah. Um, but I am fascinated by the idea of faith and all religions. You know, I've read the Quran, the Bhagavad Gita. All these are very interesting. And the history within also is very interesting to me. And I always Indeed. wonder how, how do these men of faith, quote unquote, justify their horrific actions? Because history is littered with <laughs> the story of horrific actions perpetrated in the name of religion. And I'm talking about yes. all religion. Um, yes. So, you know, so this in itself, the character was so well described as this. He has this one scene and I, I do believe that he has the weight. I wanted to add this sort of calm weight to the character because calmness 
is way more terrifying than a blinding rage. Objective you know, he does have a moment. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I have to admit that, you know, the, the, you know, when you are part of a, a project that is of such high quality, it's as if the, the, the quality transpires on you. You know, the director of photography, uh, Ben Richardson and Corin, uh, uh, his other director of photography, Ben Richardson is the director as well, has collaborated, you know, as a director, he's, he's the director, sorry, and the yes. director of photography, and co has collaborated many times with Taylor Sheridan. He lit Beast of the Southern Wild, he did, mm -hmm. he did uh, Mayor of Easttown, uh, has lit all of Yellowstone and directed, and 1883 directed, half of 1883. And you could see the writing and the quality of actors that we were surrounded by literally shone through. It's as if it, it, that energy was within all of us. You know, I would go to set when Harrison Ford and Helen Mirren were on set just to look at them, just to look at their scenes, just to look at the energy between them. Because, and I was surrounded by dudes who are the, you know, the best character actors, Tim Decay, James Badgedale, Brian Garrity, who were telling me the exact same thing. These are people, you know, in their 40s and 50s going, I'm pinching myself. This yeah. is so exciting. I mean, so Harrison, I Ford, a, Harrison, Harrison Ford uh, does the work in this. I mean, beat by beat, he does, he does the work in this movie. Uh, and, you know, having met him and, and interacted with him, I marvel at a man who has reached the pinnacle in everything that he's done. You know, every, absolutely. Do you know what I marvel at? The absolute passion for his craft and the absolute generosity that he has with his with his fellow actors and writers and crew members and grips and DPs and directors. It's, it's the passion, the care. Uh, and same with Helen Mirren, you know, and the absolute, also the, the, the complete simplicity with one another, you know, we're, we're all humans, you know, we're, we're no one else, but artists. This yes. is, this is truly an artist's collaboration and Taylor Sheridan's voice is so strong. I think that's why every actor in Hollywood wants to work with him because he, he was an actor. He understands what writing is all about. And, uh, it really transpires. You want to be, you want to do your best, you know, and that's, uh, it was so moving being there because there truly was this incredible intensity on set and there still is. It is. I, it's, it's really exciting. It's a really beautiful show. Yeah. I actually have a friend of mine who uh, is a first nations uh, counselor for abused children who has, uh, who was there when they found all the bodies at the residential school with Justin Trudeau. And I, oh I made God. her watch the pilot and she said it was the most powerful thing she's ever seen on television and that all the first oh nations God. indigenous community in America and in Canada are just so enthralled that someone is finally telling this story. Um, but you know, I'm on an acting God. level, it's interesting to me because I know a couple of years ago you had a very curious lifestyle where you were playing a cardinal in the young Pope at the same time, <laughs> yeah. you were playing a Nazi on The Man in the High Castle. Yes. And it seems yeah. like for much of your career, you, you've you really very comfortably bounced between these spiritual extremes. Obviously, you're best known for playing, uh, some would say you're best known for playing, um, you know, both <laughs> the father of all vampires <laughs> and the angel Balthazar. Yeah, yeah. So yes. it, it's yeah, very yeah. intriguing to me that you've sort of... Um, 
I wouldn't even call it finding a niche, but it seems like you've been drawn to or lucky enough to be cast in these deeply disparate roles. I, I saw um, Salome with Pacino when it came to L.A. I never got to see the New York production. But oh, that, yeah. I mean, that's yeah. one of the best depictions of John the Baptist ever. Yes. Are you drawn to these extreme dark and extreme light characters and then finding any kind of spiritual overlap between them? I, it's funny. It's as if they they landed. I am drawn to them because I find complexity, the human mechanism, fascinating. But they also fell onto my lap. You know, I I, I remember working. My, one of my first gigs in in America was doing a, a movie with Nancy Savoka called uh, Household Saints. That's with right. Vincent D'Onofrio, and I played Jesus in it. <laughs> That's right. That was just after I played John the Baptist uh, uh, with Al Pacino, you know, which was my first foray in, into theater in America. Of mm-hmm. course, I'd done theater in France and England. Um, so they do resonate in me because they are larger than life and are highly complex. And it's really interesting also even to, to play someone who, you know, Rather than a vampire, I saw the character that I played in in the Vampire Diaries in the originals as a thousand-year-old man. And I thought to myself, what is the trajectory of his life? A thousand-year-old man. You live a thousand years old. You become proficient in nearly everything that is at your disposal if you are interested in life, Mm -hmm. um, if you are interested in erudition, so you become a sort of ubermensch, you know, a superhuman. Yes. So there is something that I'm attracted to, I guess, with, with these characters. Father Renault could be someone who is, you know, a normal run-of-the-mill French priest. But I have a, I my my backstory exists. I already have a backstory for Father Renault, you know, and I can talk about it. For me, Father sure. Renault was arrested at 16, was sent to Devil's Island uh-huh. off the coast of, uh, you know, a bit like Henri Charrière in Papillon. Uh, mm-hmm. suffered greatly, escaped, went to Canada and became a sort of outlaw, was probably sent to prison and then found God in prison and became a priest. So for me, he has a flawed, uh, what's the word? He has a flawed trajectory as as a man of, of God, <laughs> you know. He could have been also, you know, the third child in a in an aristocratic family, but that's not as interesting, you know, for me. Um I, so I love then the he finds himself. I no, love the backstory too myself. Yeah, yeah. So, so you know, he finds himself in, and as many people who, who I think find faith later on, they want to be, they want to be, in no uncertain terms, they want to be goody goodies. They want to be the best pupil, you know. So, he is there in charge, has incredible power over these people who have no power whatsoever. And as you know, as we see nowadays with you know uh, people in high political power, uh, they abuse that power. And I think Mm -hmm. Father Renault is a perfect example and indictment of what happens to someone when you stick a uniform on them and they can play God. And in that respect, yeah, the Catholic. Oh, I know you speak four languages. Was the character always intended to be French? Yes, it was always intended to be French, yeah. yeah. I I, 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 I had this whole area where I... 
I wanted to ask you about your childhood growing up on a boat with your family from age 12 <laughs> yes. to 19. But as our time is yeah. short, I'm going to beg you to come back sometime. Yes. And I just want to congratulate you to, because yeah. I, I believe this is the 30-year anniversary of your first film, which I believe was Michael Mann's Last of the Mohicans oh God, yes. with Daniel right. Day-Lewis. Um, yes. I'm trying to find <laughs> you in the film. I'm trying to find your character in the movie. So it's one of those instances where you end up on the cutting room floor. That was my first... Uh, experience <laughs> in that and you know it's it happened happens. To me. it's heartbreaking it's happened to me. yeah yeah mm-hmm. I'm sure. yeah yeah you know it happens to all 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 the best of us and uh you know it was an extraordinary experience working on it working with michael mann talk about passion and working with daniel and yes. who was the the gentleman amongst all gentlemen truly uh someone i admire i mean beyond belief i mean that's someone i'd love to work again with because on of Last of the Mohicans, it was a bit more of a... My character didn't really have many interactions with him. But uh, I, w- I would love to see him work again, period. Experience. I would love to see him work again, period. Me too. Me too. Uh, Sebastian <laughs> Me Rocher, too. I am such a longtime fan. There's so much I wanted to ask Thank you about you. we didn't get to, from politics to your childhood to your other roles. I would love to invite you back anytime. Uh, we would love I, to open this platform to you. I would love to, because I let you know politics, as you know, is something that I'm very interested in. And uh, Brilliant. And I've always been very engaged. You know, my father, you know, that comes from my father, French, French mayor in exactly. France and would well, love to anytime, really. I will harass you to come <laughs> back in the meantime. Catch this gentleman Please. playing the last great TV villain of the year in 1923 on the Paramount Plus Network. Real pleasure, Mr. Roche. Thank you so much. Quick break. We'll be right back with your calls. This is Progress. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. And we are back again, folks. Have I mentioned this? The weather's really bad. Uh, it's Arctic air, strong winds, bomb cyclones. This could really hurt anybody caught outside. Southwest has canceled 400 of its 4,000 scheduled flights on Thursday and Friday. At least 145 flights into or out of Denver were canceled today. Um, that city was hit with snow, gusty winds, freezing temperatures. Delta, American, United, Frontier, Alaska, Southwest, and other airlines are waiving change fees, offering travelers the option if you need it. Amtrak has canceled train service for around 30 routes, some through Christmas Day. Greyhound just canceled bus service on 25 routes for Wednesday and Thursday, including Las Vegas to Denver, Denver to St. Louis, Chicago to Minneapolis, Memphis and Nashville. Guys, people around the country, authorities are worried about loss of power and they're warning everyone, take precautions, protect the elderly, protect the homeless, protect the livestock and protect your pets. And if possible, postpone travel. Morning consult survey found 28 percent of U.S. travelers more than last year are planning a one-day trip for the holidays. 28%, that's up 14% from last year. 
please be safe. Okay, I'm done talking about the historically crazy bad weather. I'm now ready to bring Max Burns back on the show. Max is a Public Relations Society of America award-winning Democratic strategist and a terrific political columnist. His work has guided some very successful American companies and campaigns. You can read his stuff in the Daily Beast, News Nation, NBC News. He has a great new piece on his Substack, which all of you should subscribe to. It's called The Third Degree. I highly recommend it. It is called Elon's Twitter Enters the Red Zone. Because Elon's having so much fun, he can't be bothered to run Twitter or Tesla. And now Twitter's on the brink of financial implosion. Mr. Max Burns, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks so much for being had. How are you? I am just grateful to not be at an airport. I think I think everyone can count their blessings on that. Um, not everyone. A lot of people are still going to do it, and I, I, I hope they're all safe. I really, really do. Um, I, usually, I'm just scared of the COVID or the RSV. Now, I mean, my God, it's a triple-demic and all this horrible weather. Max, I was scared that Zelensky would be stuck in this country and not able to fly back to Ukraine. That's, that's how bad it looks. I hadn't even thought of that, but now, now it's all I can think about. You've put this in my head. <laughs> I know. I'm here to think of the really weird Christmas specials we could talk about. Um, as if Christmas isn't weird enough. You know, Max, we play a game around here. We try to we try to figure out which famous person has squandered all their gifts on a public scale at the grandest way this year between Donald Trump, Vladimir Putin and Kanye West. I'm still betting it's Elon Musk. I think Elon Musk has blown it on a grander scale more than any of those other guys, even more than Kanye, because, I, I mean, have you looked at Tesla stock lately? It's 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 really, really scary. Um, what surprised you most while you were writing this piece about Elon's Twitter entering the red zone? Where do we begin on this spectacle? Well, what's so interesting to me about this whole thing is that Elon Musk is having the time of his life. He's on Twitter from, in some cases, five in the morning until two or three in the morning, talking to really any of these alt-right goons who will uh, engage him. But he doesn't seem to be spending any of that time actually running these businesses. He's really content to be the person of the day on the internet every day. And he gets a lot of validation from that. But at the same time, uh, it's clear that his business is not just Twitter, are struggling. There's now layoffs announced today at Tesla. There's a hiring freeze at Tesla now. Uh, it's down, what, 60 or 65% for the year. So mm -hmm. these things are all starting to compound in a way that's making a lot of people question the, the image of Elon Musk as some business genius. Well, I mean, he paid 30 billion more for Twitter than it was worth. Uh, he's lost about 120 odd billion dollars in Tesla stock in just three months. Um, it really does seem highly preventable. And we're hearing more and more of, you know, Tesla shareholders who are saying we don't have a CEO right now. I mean, we expect Twitter to go through this rough time and it's all really funny. But Tesla stock is seriously tanking and you know, there are many other electric car companies to pick up the slack. There are. And unlike with Twitter, which is sort of now Elon Musk's personal experiment, uh, Tesla has a lot of other activist shareholders who are not happy. And and he's lashed out on Twitter at those investors, uh, even though that's technically in violation of a court order that he has uh, about some of the other things he said about Tesla stock on Twitter. But it's not clear to me that Elon anymore is, has a grip on reality. He has so many people around him That's on it. Twitter who who are 
treating him much like they did Donald Trump. And they are hanging on every word that he says. Um, you can experience it for yourself. Just say something bad about Elon Musk. But yeah, it's it's certainly not healthy for the business because it's it's not clear that they're paying their bills. It's not clear that they're intending to honor any of their severance agreements uh, with the employees they've laid off. It's mm -hmm. not clear that they're listening to warnings from the European Union. And and these are all things that will will find Elon Musk back in court. And that's going to get very expensive very fast. I mean, in your piece, you write in just the past few days, Musk threw red meat to the right with a call to prosecute Dr. Anthony Fauci engaged in casual transphobia implied without evidence that Twitter's former head of trust and safety, Yale Roth, was a pedophile, forcing Roth to flee his home due to death threats. And he claimed that fighting the woke mind virus was the single most important issue in the world today. I mean, let's talk about deeply insecure billionaires who are so surrounded by yes men They'll think walking on stage at a Dave Chappelle show in San Francisco with no material could somehow be a good idea. I mean, the most shocking thing about it was that they had no banter planned. I watched the entire six minutes. It's just Elon standing on stage trying to make sense of a world that's not kissing his ass. I, I just feel like, is he around anyone that he's not paying anymore? No, and in large part, it, this shows you just how out of touch he's become. And the fact that he thinks that he can negotiate. Uh, most recently, we saw that, that Elon Musk was not going to pay any of the rent for any of the Twitter offices to the corporate landlords they rent That's from. That's it. And, and he thought that this would be uh, this, this sort of game that the rich play, that Donald Trump has played, of don't pay your bills. And then once your contractor is desperate, uh, see how little they'll take, and That's maybe right. they'll take 10 cents on the dollar. The challenge for Musk is that these are not two-bit contractors. These are major real estate companies. They have just as good a lawyer as Elon Musk, in many cases better, because Elon Musk has fired most of Twitter's lawyers. But they, they are not going to take this sitting down. They will no. take Musk to court, and, and there is no real defense that he can make, uh, that he's just not going to honor contracts signed by his company. I mean, when we look at Kanye West losing a billion dollars, but then we see Elon Musk no longer being the world's richest man. I mean, that like they'll be writing books about how much money this guy lost. Tesla, as you point out, has shed almost 60 percent of its share value this year alone. So it makes me think if we're talking capitalism, who's going to pay this guy to fly on his rocket ship? Who's going to pay this guy to volunteer to have his computer chips implanted in their brains? I mean, Elon Musk is Mr. I am the future, but it seems like his obsession with getting pleasure and compliments in the present is going to destroy everything he's built. Yeah. It, it, and the challenge is that this doesn't just sink Twitter. I mean, it's it's become clear now that Elon Musk is bringing over staff from Tesla, from SpaceX to work at Twitter, to be lawyers for Twitter to be code writers, ignoring the fact that that people who build rockets for a living have no idea how to write code for a social network. Uh, but this is also incredibly frustrating to the boards of directors of those companies who now see their own companies starting to suffer because Elon is dedicating all of his effort to whatever this Twitter project is. And it isn't even clear that he knows. I mean, just two days ago, there was uh, announced a ban on promoting any other social network on Twitter, anyone who did it would be permanently banned. About four hours later, that was reversed. And then it was put to a poll 
that was then abandoned. So it's it's unclear even to Elon Musk, I think, what his plan is here. And he may have the money that this doesn't matter to him. But those thousands of employees who are still at Twitter, who are risking losing their job, are, are certainly probably not in a great holiday spirit tonight. Oh, no doubt. We're talking to the great Max Burns. His new piece on Substack is called Elon's Twitter Enters the Red Zone. Max, I want to ask you about um, something that doesn't get covered on American news too much or in American media, and that is this thing they call the European Union. Uh, The EU is threatening him with sanctions over violations of the Digital Services Act, and that seems to be just the beginning of his problem with European regulators. What's going on with Europe, and, and why are they paying a bit more close attention to Elon than officials here in the States? Well, this is this is actually something I find fascinating because, as you mentioned, it is almost never discussed. Is Europe and the European Union has some of the strongest uh, data privacy and tech laws in the world, and they enforce and there, them. And by the way, that's why you're not hearing about it on American news media. But go on, please. I'm sorry. No, they they enforce those laws vigorously. I mean, they fined Google just recently $5 billion for failing to safeguard personal data. And there are are really two laws, the General Data Protection Regulation, GDPR, and the Data Services Act, DSA, uh, which is just coming into force. And these essentially set standards for security for users to ensure that, you know, you're, you're not a victim of scams, that your data is protected, that you can't be easily hacked. And there are requirements. You're required to have staff who are issue experts in this, who can interface with the European Union. Elon Musk fired all of them and essentially huh. dared the EU to, to take him to court. And the EU is more than happy to do so. Uh, they've won cases now against Facebook, against Google several times. Uh, they've worked with Twitter under Jack Dorsey to avoid those kind of sanctions. And Twitter actually had a pretty robust data privacy Uh, operation in the EU. That is all gone. Elon Musk has made clear he is not going to rehire anybody else and that the EU knows where to find him. And that's going to be a very costly bit of arrogance. I mean, the EU said they were going to have sanctions on him for banning journalists. uh, And and, I mean, ultimately, he could face fines, I understand, for up to 6% of all global revenue. They're going to regulate him, whether apartheid McBrat face thinks he should be regulated or not. But I, I have to ask you, Max, in the midst of all of this, let's go way back in time to the month of November when Elon just humiliated his entire workforce and announced on Twitter that they could either... Uh, uh, stay and, uh, and and be his slaves or get fired right now and get, a, I think, a three-month package. I mean, with all of these costly losses, how are they going to manage continuing to pay out severance to the thousands of employees he fired? Well, that's a great question. And the answer is they're not. Uh, Elon Musk very plainly said that he, uh, this is from a New York Times article, that Uh, the company was working very diligently to try and avoid paying that severance, that they were finding ways to back out of this and and to claim that they didn't have the money. And the problem with that is it's very, very illegal. And California has an incredibly strong set of laws about the amount of warning and notice people need to be given when they're laid off. You, You don't get to ignore it for your own reasons. And his employees have already filed a, a class action lawsuit against him for several other instances of discrimination related to these firings. And we're looking now at what would be one of the largest class action lawsuits 
filed against a tech company ever if he goes through with this. Unreal. Unreal, Max. Um, are there any lawyers that are even working for Twitter anymore? I mean, I mean, what kind of skeleton crew does he have going on there? And, and what is... I mean, what does this man's life look like from a legal perspective in the next couple of weeks? I mean, who who would you rather be, Trump or Elon, looking at legal woes for the next five years? Well, Elon Musk's woes are about to move much faster because these are these are not, you know, affairs of state. These are business law. And the law is very settled on these issues. The challenge is Elon doesn't even know who he has on his team. He recently fired his deputy general counsel on the advice of some right-wing trolls on Twitter. Uh, I believe he's got a few lawyers from SpaceX who are working with him, as well as some friends of his who are lawyers who do not legally represent Twitter as a company, which is going to complicate their efforts to file lawsuits on Twitter's behalf. Uh, it's it's just not clear that Elon Musk has taken this very seriously. He's certainly Deeply. not set the business up to succeed uh, in any of these challenges. It's unclear who even serves as Twitter's general counsel right now, which mm -hmm. is a precarious place to be when you're facing almost a dozen international lawsuits. This, Max, is the part of the conversation where I remind the listeners that um, I don't know what it is Elon does for recreation. I don't know what kind of enablers he has. Uh, I would never cast any aspersions about what his recreational hobbies are. But uh, if you have a problem with cocaine, please get help. There's help out there available for you. Please, listeners, please uh, go to a meeting if you can. I, I, I don't want to cast too many aspersions on the guy, Max, but this whole thing just it feels like it's going to end like the last scene of Scarface more and more. Well, it's funny you bring that up because one of the things that that just came out this week with several employees were complaining to the paper because there is no more HR at Twitter. Your HR director is Elon Musk. But they were complaining that Musk is circulating around to them uh, essentially manifestos, I guess you would call them, uh, about how much better taking mushrooms is than drinking alcohol or taking pharmaceutical antidepressants. And he's sort of walking around extolling the virtues of microdosing and tripping all day. Are you kidding me, Max puts Burns? A lot of this into perspective. Elon's when, walking when around talking microdosing. <sighs> oh, he's talking microdosing while all this is going on. Oh my god. Well, I, I, I didn't think that I didn't think I didn't have uh, Elon Musk making shrooms uncool on my bingo card for this year, Max. But wow, I, wh where was this reported? This was reported uh, in Gadget or Tech Radar, um, but this came out just this week, and they've shared uh, extensive conversations text messages from employees about this. And it, it, Elon has sort of become, uh, gone into full victim mode about this. And they're saying, well, these people are vilifying uh, psychedelic therapy and they they're support big pharma. Nobody's judging Elon Musk for taking psychedelics. They're judging Elon Musk for taking them at work. And that seems to be causing a work environment wow. where people, let's say, don't feel entirely comfortable talking to their boss. Wow. You know, I, I have to ask you about his politics, because that's the big question mark here for me. Now, he always boasted about what a Democrat he was and endorsed Obama and Hillary Clinton. And, and now, of course, he's gone so MAGA, so right wing, so Ron DeSantis. Uh, obviously, w w so he never cared about women's reproductive rights. He never believed in climate science. He never believed in anything ideologically when he was supporting Democrats. There's no reason to believe he believes in anything right now. But 
Do you think that his rightward turn is genuine, Mr. Burns, or is this more performative uh, leadership because he's trying to become Lord of the Dude Bros? I, I don't think he wants to be Trump. I think he wants to be Joe Rogan. Yeah, I think it's as genuine as Elon Musk knows how to be, which is not terribly. I mean, the the way I like to think about his ideological shift and his need to be so performative about it is that at base, Elon Musk is a very lonely guy. And yeah. you don't have to take my word for it. He's been very open in interviews with Rolling Stone, with other outlets, uh, about how he struggles to connect with people. He worried he would never get married or find love again, that he soaks himself in work because he he struggles to find meaningful connection. So when mm. you're now the person of the day on the Internet and you have an army of people validating every idea you have, that is a powerful drug. And you're going to keep doing what gets you that praise. He already sees that the people who do not like him really don't like him. So the natural step is to then cater exclusively to the people who do. And people like Candace Owens, Ian Miles Chong, uh, Mike hmm. Lindell, the My Pillow guy, are very expert at exploiting this kind of insecurity. We saw them do it with Kanye West. We saw them do it with Donald Trump. And they'll do it with Elon Musk because he's an easy target for that kind of manipulative personality. So how does this end, Mr. Burns? I mean, I'm so bored of this movie already. How does this end? Right. It is funny that it is one of the fastest moving corporate collapses in history. And yet mm -hmm. it is so boring it could, because it's the same hate speech and the same tired old memes thrown out by Elon Musk every day. But I, I wish I knew. I mean, I don't think that Twitter is at immediate risk of going anywhere. But if these lawsuits start happening, if the EU gets involved, he does not have 6% of corporate revenue to give <laughs> in fines. He barely has operating revenue right now. And he's been offering uh, to sell shares in Twitter again at mm. his 5420 share price, which is the equivalent of me trying to sell you my still burning Tesla for sticker <laughs> price. And unsurprisingly, he hasn't gotten any buyers. But it's, it's clear he knows something is wrong because he's trying to raise money, too. Last scene of Scarface, Max. That's all I'm saying. Last scene of Scarface. Um, I, I, I want to shift gears briefly and talk about Republicans in disarray because we're witnessing Kevin McCarthy going really hard here trying to get the votes bribed to become Speaker of the House. Lauren Boebert can't stop insulting him and he can't stop giving her money. Uh, we now know that George Santos, the latest grifter du jour, uh, that that he Kevin McCarthy has no problem with this guy fabricating his entire history. He will seat him in the House as long as he gets the vote. Um, we were talking a couple of weeks ago about what could happen if Kevin McCarthy just doesn't have the votes and how funny that would be. But you brought up a possible alternative of someone who is probably most likely to come up and seize the crown if McCarthy can't do it. And I got to tell you, as the weeks has gone by, Max, I've begun to think you're right. Who uh, who has been working behind the scenes while Kevin McCarthy is hustling for the cameras? So this is very interesting. You want to talk about Scarface and a good gangster finale. Uh, Deputy leader Steve Scalise, uh, Kevin, one of Kevin McCarthy's best friends and closest allies, is now the Washington Examiner reports being very aggressively put forward as sort of a compromise candidate because Kevin McCarthy has 222 problems in that he needs almost every Republican vote to become speaker. He can only lose nine. And he's got about 12 or 13 who are diehard 
never Kevin McCarthy. I don't care what they offer me. I won't do it. People like Matt Gates, Lauren Boebert. Yeah. Uh, and Scalise, for his part, has been very cagey about it ever since they won. They it became clear they would have the majority. He's been making phone calls. He's been very uh, careful in how he words his statements. He says that he's aware of this movement, but pointedly did not say he wouldn't do it, uh, which right. I think says all you need to know. I mean, politicians are capable of saying no when they mean no. And if if Steve Scalise wasn't considering it, he would have said that. Well, that means this is the point where we have to remind people who Steve Scalise is, because you have convinced me there's a very good chance this guy could become Speaker of the House. Uh, he's very well known, of course, for having been shot um, by a, uh, a deranged person, uh, a mentally disturbed person. Um, of course, what I know him for is being a person who... Uh, always opposed equal rights for women, opposed Lily Ledbetter equal pay law, has opposed any laws that would bring any kind of equality or dignity to LGBT people, and uh, privately said uh, that he was David Duke without the baggage. And so he, when he was shot, after he voted to make it easier for mentally ill people to get guns, he was saved by Crystal Griner, Capitol Police, a black married lesbian. I love the story of the white supremacist, homophobe, misogynist having his life saved by the black married lesbian but uh, tell us a bit more about steve scalise because honestly i think this guy's a big ball of bad and he might be much more effective than kevin mccarthy ever could be he is he's a consummate political operator he's managed to keep his head down through all of the shifts uh he's allied himself when convenient with the trump wing and when convenient with people like former speaker john boehner uh, in 2015, lest we all forget, um, or 2014, he gave a headline speech to a group called the European American Unity and Rights Organization, Euro. European American, yeah. Uh, who, who started that group, by the way? This was a former Ku Klux Klan leader, David Duke, started ding, that organization. Ding, <laughs> And he was he was more than happy to attend. He, he ate the, the rubber chicken, he drank the wine, he gave a headline speech, and... Uh, Years later, finally gave a half-hearted apology for that when he was considering seeking the speakership after John Boehner. But now that's become not just acceptable, that's almost a requirement to be a Republican leader now. And he's, mm -hmm. he's really playing these sides who will never support Kevin McCarthy, but who want someone who's maybe a little more palatable than a straight MAGA Republican. And and he wears that mask well, and it's what makes him so dangerous. Yeah. How scared should decent, intelligent people be? Because the closer we get, the more it seems that McCarthy's not going to be able to pull this off. And the time is right for a dark horse to slip through. It is. I mean, it's unclear even if they end up electing a speaker, whether that person's going to have any authority. I mean, I couldn't tell you who speaks for the Republican Party right now. There are about seven different insurgent speakers in waiting. Uh, the challenge is, do they become the first party in history to collapse before they actually take over? That That's would it. be such a fitting thing. And I think Americans are already exhausted by this sideshow. What are the odds that no matter who takes the gavel, you know, my thinking is Marjorie Taylor Greene is going to be the speaker no matter what. I mean, she'll have the power. It doesn't matter who they give the gavel to. 
Uh, Marge, it looks like, could come off as a real kingmaker in this. I have been very surprised by her alliance with McCarthy and even more surprised to see her and Lauren Boebert, you know, declare drone warfare on each other. I mean, how powerful will the MAGA batshit white supremacist wing be? It seems like they're in a good place, whether it's Scalise or McCarthy. Oh, absolutely. I mean, Marjorie Taylor Greene will tell you what she thinks. She told the New York Times back in October If Kevin McCarthy knows what's good for him, he'll give me a lot of power and a lot of leeway. And if he doesn't, the base won't like that very much. I mean, she knows how to wield a threat, and that seems to have worked. He's already promised to give her her committees back. Uh, She's walking with Kevin McCarthy literally at his right hand at events. It's it's very clear that even if Kevin McCarthy is the speaker, that that Marjorie Taylor Greene will be the person moving things forward and the person holding the party accountable. And that's a really terrifying thought. I mean, you know you've gone far when Lauren Boebert is accusing Marjorie Taylor Greene of sleeping with Kevin McCarthy to get her (laughs) committee seats back. You know, the the conspiracy, when you built a party on conspiracy theories, it's hard to flick the off switch when those conspiracies come for you. But Greene is, is firing back. I mean, she's confident in her man, and she thinks that she has the power coming into this. Wow. Hey, before I let you go, Mr. Burns, really quick, I, I, you had a great piece for NBC News about Kirsten Cinema that everyone should read. Um, and I, I just I, I want to know what you make of her recent choice. Was it smart of her to leave the Democratic Party? Does it in any way increase her likelihood of holding on to the seat or does it just throw the seat into jeopardy for Republicans? The, the piece, by the way, is called Cinema is an Independent because both Democrats and Republicans don't like her. Yeah, no, Kristen Cinema's toast. I mean, she has spent her entire career trying to put herself in the image of John McCain as a maverick. The yeah. challenge being she's just not that good at politics or strategy. I mean, even her own staff uh, were shocked by this, said they couldn't understand the calculus of this. This doesn't save her. She's doomed either way. The only thing this does is put a much tougher fight in in two years Uh, when we have to contest this against an independent and a Republican. But, you know, fortunately for us and for Arizona, Sinem is one of the most unliked politicians in modern Arizona history. She's underwater by at least 10 points with every single demographic in the state. And you almost have to work to do that. But she's unliked enough. I mean, but she's still liked enough that she could run as a third party independent and completely destroy it for Ruben Gallego should he get the Democratic nomination. I mean, I don't think that Carrie Lake is going to run for the Senate seat. Everyone's saying, oh, my God, she's going to make Carrie Lake a senator. I, I kind of feel like the Republican Party is done with Carrie Lake, especially after, you know, what's been going on. Yeah. But whoever the GOP nominee is, it just sort of seems like Kirsten Cinema is going to go on taking tons of corporate donations from Mitch McConnell's right wing friends, not for any legislative purpose beyond tanking the Arizona Senate race for the Democratic Party. I mean, what other end game is there? No, you're right. I mean, she has nowhere to go. And a sign of her lack of political strategy is she made this decision at the moment when her political capital was at the lowest after Democrats already won Senate control decisively. You know, a a smart player, if you look at switches in the past, would have done this during the midterms when she could have extracted some kind of concession from this. But every sign I see from her gives the indication of someone who's in over her head, who realizes she has no good options 
and and that this is the easiest way to to sort of cast yourself as an independent and just mm. pray that works. But it, it does not seem like anyone in Arizona is convinced. Wow. Before I let you go, Max, um, what's your report card on Joe Biden? How did his 2022 turn out for you? I'll tell you what a turnaround. Six months ago, everyone was telling Joe Biden to retire and go live on a farm upstate. And now he's passed, you know, a dozen pieces of major legislation, half of them with Republican votes. He got Republican votes on a gun control bill and Republican votes to protect marriage equality. I mean, he's on track, honestly, to have one of the most successful and productive first terms of any president since Franklin Roosevelt. I agree. And if I'm him, I mean, that's a comparison I don't mind. Yeah. Do you care about the debate over whether he will or should run? I think that it, people need to talk about something genuinely. I, I think it doesn't enter Joe Biden's mind. I think he's probably talked about it with his family already. He's talked about it with his team. There seems to be every indication he's going to run again. And yeah. I hope he does. He's proven so far to be the only person who could actually beat Donald Trump. And mm. with with that and delivering the legislative wins he has, I'm quite impressed. It seems like Mrs. Biden uh, has been moved on this and that she's on board for a, uh, a reelection campaign. So, you know, as I keep telling everybody, look, yeah, he'll be 80. He'll be 82. But uh, whoever he's running against will be running on 95 year old Herbert Hoover economics. So ideologically, he's going to be the young guy in the race. Yeah, and he'll be the only one who can string a coherent thought together. I mean, if if the midterms taught us anything, it's that there is a cottage industry for underestimating Joe Biden's political sense. They said, yeah. don't don't give speeches about democracy. That's too high minded for voters. Don't make it about abortion. That's too polarizing. Joe Biden went out and did both of those things, pick up a seat in the Senate and killed the red wave in like before it even began. I think. By any standard, he's been a resounding success and maybe has earned himself a little bit of credibility for his political logic. Wow. Any thoughts on Ron DeSantis, Max? The no heir apparent, the, the 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 one with the coronation that's coming up. Any any thoughts on uh <laughs> on how the doughy mediocrity from Florida is looking? I urge American voters to not make the same mistake that they did with Trump. I mean, Ron DeSantis, for all of his many faults, is a much shrewder political player. He does not make the same sloppy mistakes Donald Trump does. He knows how to build coalitions that raise money and, and get him votes. And we we ignore that at our own peril. I, I still am not sure he's going to run. But if he does, he will certainly beat Donald Trump. Yes, I agree with you. Do you anticipate a large GOP field and do you anticipate a Democratic field? I do not anticipate a Democratic field. I think, fortunately, everybody is now looking for 2028. But with the Republicans, it's going to be anything goes. I, even Chris Christie is talking about running again. And you oh. know things are bad when Chris Christie's dusting off his running shoes. <sighs> yeah, well, just that sentence alone. Max Burns, it is such a pleasure speaking with you. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to make a joke about Chris Christie running. Uh, what is the best way for our listeners to follow you and keep up with your many doings? You can, for now, follow me on Twitter at the Max Burns. Uh, you can also check out my Substack. It's maxburns.substack.com or on NBC News or The Daily Beast. It is always such a great pleasure to have you on our show, sir. Thank you for all you do. We look forward to covering everything with you in 2023. 
Thanks so much. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year to you. You too. Keep safe and keep warm. Quick break. And then we got to talk about Zelensky. We got to talk about a lot of things. Don't go away. This is Progress. This is SiriusXM Progress. Um, I want to get to your calls really quick. Let's talk about Zelensky. I, I know it happened hours ago, but we had so much going on the first two hours on the show. Now, the incoming Republican House majority, you know, has expressed uh, deep misgivings about continuing to send aid to Ukraine because Vladimir Putin wouldn't like it. And they're not fans of anti-authoritarianism, in case you haven't noticed. So this visit of President Zelensky to the U.S., would give him a crucial chance to meet personally with some of the Republican leadership that is skeptical to try to convince them that USAID is vital and it's being used properly. I mean, you could make the argument this man is literally pleading for his own life to American Republicans. Now, Hanukkah's begun, Christmas is coming, Ukraine's having massive power outages caused by Russian strikes on civilian targets and civilian infrastructure. Zelensky tried to give a speech tonight that could reach these lawmakers on an emotional level, even the Matt Gateses and Lauren Boberts who refused to clap for him. Now, the last time he addressed Congress was by Zoom back in March, and he talked about Pearl Harbor and 9-11 and his plea for more assistance. And as you guys know, for a lot of Americans, helping Ukraine has been really deprioritized. That, that, that's a February story. But Zelensky has to do it. I mean, the desperation and commitment is there. And Joe Biden and and First Lady Jill Biden welcomed him to the White House earlier today. That stuff was very interesting. This is his first time leaving the Ukraine in 300 days since Russia's murderous invasion began in February. Um, Now, look, Biden said they're going to get Patriot missile defense systems now. And a lot of people are happy about that. They think that the range of the Patriot missiles and the performance will reduce the effectiveness of Russia's bombing, which has totally degraded the country's electrical grid. And again, people are going to start freezing. Here's a clip from earlier today. I want to play a few clips from our day. Keep in mind, Congress is poised to pass roughly $45 billion in additional military and economic aid to Ukraine this week as part of the $1.7 trillion omnibus spending bill, which as of this week, we will have spent over $100 billion to stop World War III, to avoid World War III, to prevent World War III. Want to know what you think. Earlier today, here's, um, it was a remarkable moment that they could have the levity and that his timing was that good. There was a great moment today where, you know... <laughs> Joe Biden talked about how he told Vladimir Putin in 2011, I don't think you have a soul. And Putin allegedly replied, we understand each other. Now, again, you know, this can't go on forever. We can't go on arming Ukraine forever, of course. But the U.S. is very willing to provide more weapons, but they're being held back by a lot of European resistance and well-founded fears of escalation. Nobody wants this to get worse than it is. And I got to say, this White House has been walking a tightrope all year that I've respected. You, You know, on the one hand... You you don't want this to become uh, a world war with American troops on the ground. On the other hand, my God, the solidarity of the movement opposing what Putin is doing. It, never forget, Putin's the bad guy. And all the trolls on Twitter calling Zelensky a Nazi are leaving out the fact that Zelensky is Jewish. But here's another moment that was kind of moving earlier today. This is at the White House when President Zelensky unexpectedly gives Joe Biden a medal, a cross for military merit on behalf of a war hero who is named Pavlo. Uh, Biden was very, 
very moved by this. It was a lovely moment. Biden was so moved, if you see the video, and when he said undeserved, but, but much appreciated. And then this evening, of course, President Zelensky spoke to a joint session of Congress. You know, a lot of the headlines were about how Lauren Boebert and Matt Gates were just sitting there while everybody else in Congress was cheering Zelensky just to show that they're both complete authoritarian trash. So we're going to ask you guys what you think of all this. But again, I'm someone who hates all war, opposes all war. When it comes to self-defense, <laughs> you could make the argument that, you know, Hitler started World War II, the Allies finished it. And this is Putin trying to start World War Three, and the Allies are trying to stop it. Ukraine is an ally. Ukraine is a democracy. This is a country that is unjustly invading them and slaughtering their men, women, and children, a country run by a dictator, a dictator who interferes with our elections, who kidnaps our citizens for ransom. We know who the bad guy is here. Let's go to the phones. You guys are so patient. We're at 866-997-4748. Mark in Canada, thanks for your patience on hold. Hey, dude. You hey. want to see escalation? Mm. Um, that's, what, that's what we've seen right now. That's what Georgia was. That's what Chechnya was. This is escalation right in front of us. So fear by escalation, who's who's escalation? You mean you, you you mean Putin's escalation well, or or Ukraine fighting back? Yeah, Putin's escalation. Yeah. Absolutely, that's what he's doing. Yeah, you know. So so these so-called Republicans complaining that there might be escalation. That's what this is. I the know. only reason why a person like 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 Putin can get away with this is because this education system that, you know, Canada and the United States share has been so fucking decimated ever since the 1980s, since I graduated high school. Yep. It's been just, people don't even know their own fucking history. Yeah, well, you know what? But you know what? You know know what history I know? I I can remember way, way back in 1990-91 when Saddam Hussein invaded a smaller, weaker neighbor. And oh, my God, if you oppose that war, when we sent troops to die to restore the dictator of Kuwait, Kuwait, not a democracy, a family owned corporation with a flag where women are legal property and criminals get their hands cut off. And we went to war stealing oil. We went to exactly. Movie? We went to war that for that. Lewis. Yep. And how many times? He says, I'm, "I'm drinking your, I'm drinking your milkshake." Yeah. That's what Kuwait was doing to Iraq. Exactly they were, right. They were horizontal drilling in Iraqi oil fields. That's exactly. By the way, I could talk about that all day because our our U.S. ambassador to Iraq more or less gave Saddam Hussein the green light to go ahead and invade. And then Bush got the big war that he thought was going to get him real. I'm I'm still mad about it. I'm still mad about the second Iraq war. So these same people now that are playing dove, they had no problem questioning the patriotism of every decent, intelligent soul who said, why are we sending troops to die for dictators? Yeah. The 20 billion dollars a day they were spending in Iraq. Correct. Complaining about forty billion dollars in a year? Of course they are, because this is for democracy. This is for because this is for the stuff they pretend to care about. Those wars were for corporate profits, which they care about. These wars are for freedom and liberty, which is just window dressing for the Republican Party. Anathema to the Republicans. But indeed, the thing that okay. So the reason why I was calling was not because okay. So you get me my blood boiling. Yeah, sorry. These, these I know I'm the worst. Okay. I, I'm like Twitter in the morning. Just you're, avoid me. You're I know. A horrible I'm, individual. I'm, I'm aware of it. For the, I just want to say that for the last year, you guys have been basically holding the wall for me against absolute insanity 
and some semblance of, of, of a positive outcome, some Thank idea that, that things could get better. And, and your you. programming is, is absolutely wonderful. Uh, I, was, I was saying to Thea that, that my, my reading list is like 80% from your show. I know, it's Just crazy. Ridiculous. We have way too many books. I'm re- way too many books oh on the show. Oh, my God. No, no, no. There are not too many books. What gets me is that so many of them are so fucking good. Like, I know. What like gets me what is that I don't have a social life anymore because I'm always researching these damn books trying to make these authors think I've read their work. It takes up all my day. Yeah, I don't know how you do it. I don't know how you do it. I, not I'm well. Just okay. I just so think it all. Is, I want to wish you guys all a very happy new year. Blessings of the seasons. I think you guys are doing wonderful work. Right now, I'm yeah. looking at my thermostat. Tell it's me. minus 22 degrees. What part of Canada, minus Mark? 22 where in Canada? I am north of north of Regina, between Regina and Saskatoon. Between Regina right? and Saskatoon, so yeah, so this is just the average Wednesday for you, right? Well, I'm, I'm from Vancouver, so okay. out there oh. we've, had a, we've had a we've had a lot of snow, but uh, the cold never gets like this. Wow! This so is, you're you know, a Va- Vancouver boy. R- Regina is a whole different universe of cold than from from Vancouver. Well, I lived in the Northwest Territories for like twelve years. Both oh, of my right both my boys are born in Yellowknife, so. Yeah, I, oh. I know what the cold's like. Yeah, I'm used to that. Well, but please, please be safe I, the next I, couple of days. The other day I woke up and it was 30 below. Oh, my God. 30 fucking below. 30 below. I'm not kidding you, <laughs> All right. Well, at least, hey, no. bro, at least you got health care, right? At least you got health care, well, eh? So, so I, go, I used to go down to Atlanta all the time. In the middle of winter, I'd be delivering in Atlanta, right? So I get down to Atlanta. There's a bunch of guys standing outside, and they're all shaking and shivering. It's about an inch of snow on the ground. My words <laughs> to them at the time, dudes, it's not cold until you can carry propane in an open bucket. <laughs> <laughs> Mark, I hope you have Google a wonderful it. Christmas. Thank you Google so much it. for calling. I, I, I appreciate your very, very kind words. Thank you for listening. And I just want to say that what, what keeps giving me hope and faith are, are the listeners here, the people I get to talk to every night, the people I hear calling into to Dean's show and Michelangelo and Stephanie's show. Honestly, it's the audience at Series Sex and Progress that makes me happier every day and gives me a lot of hope. So I, I thank you very much. And, and hey, Canada's my, my favorite of all 50 states.